This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, joined by Jeff Salingo. It's great to be here with you again, Michael. And uh, today we're going to have Pat McGuire, who's president of Trinity Washington College, uh, uh, joining us. You know, being here in D.C. Uh, for the last 20 years, um, all you've heard about is uh, is Trinity and what Pat uh, McGuire has done there. Uh, as we think about the future of small colleges in particular, which is something we'll be focusing on in this in this ep- uh, episode, uh, the transformation of Trinity from a small elite women's college to what they've become, especially around adult education, connecting themselves to the city in ways they haven't, uh, I think is a story that really other small colleges, both women's colleges, but also co-ed colleges can really take and, 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 and think about uh, as, uh, as they're thinking about what's next for their own, uh, for their own future. So Pat, uh, a question that we ask uh, a lot of our guests is, how did you get into higher education? Out of all the careers uh, to do uh, around the world, uh, why higher ed? I'm a public interest lawyer gone bad. <laughs> I was running a clinical program at Georgetown Law Center called Street Law. I had to start fundraising to be sure my program stayed funded. And the dean of the law school came to me and said, you're pretty good at fundraising. Why don't you run our development office? And I crossed the great divide into administration and never looked back. I also happened to be on Trinity's board back then. And in 1989, I was the sixth person in eight years to have that presidency. I didn't know anything about what I was doing, and that was a good thing. So that's how I got there. So that's a perfect segue because you're credited with transforming Trinity, which six leadership changes in eight years is, uh, suggests that there was some transforming to be done. But for people outside of the Washington, D.C. area, they may not be familiar with the story. What what was it like at Trinity when you arrived, and and how has it evolved over time? Well, Trinity at that time was about close to being 100 years old, historic Catholic women's college, founded because Catholic University didn't admit women in the 19th century. But in the 70s and 80s, when all the men's schools went co-ed, like many women's colleges, Trinity's enrollment declined. So when I became president, there were only 300 full-time undergraduates. There was an adult studies program called the Weekend College that one of my predecessors had started. There were also graduate programs in teacher education, but the liberal arts faculty wanted the restoration of the real college, which was the full-time undergraduate women's college. We were historically Catholic and sisters, sisters of Notre Dame were the presidents, and it took the sisters a period of years to figure out that they didn't have any more candidates, and that was the other issue that affects many of the Catholic schools. When is it time for the congregation to step aside? When do you allow lay leaders to come in? So that was all part of the tumult in the 1980s. And I always tell people, nothing else bad could happen. That was why I was allowed to be president (laughs) with no experience, but it was my alma mater. I loved it. And so what were some of the key actions that you had to take that led to where, where you are today? There were several very important things that in the first year I figured out pretty quickly. First, we had to accept the idea that diversification of our programs and our structure was permanent. There was no returning to just being an undergraduate liberal arts college. That model doesn't work. It doesn't work for many institutions. We had to accept diversity of programs. The second thing, we had to accept diversity of our students. I asked the admissions director the first day I started how many students we had from DC. And she said, none. Really? And I said, why not? She said, oh, they can't do the work here. 
And this was the underlying institutional racism that was preventing us from focusing on the women who needed us most, which were local women, women of color, who needed the advantages we could offer. So we changed that, and that became very controversial, of course, but it was part of Trinity's future. It started our renaissance. So let's talk about that controversy, because this interests me a lot in terms of the role alumni play, uh, alumni play in terms of the, the, the future direction of their colleges. Everybody wants their college to be exactly the way it was when they were there. So there was a lot of pushback. I mean, you had mm-hmm. graduated people yep. like Nancy Pelosi, right. you know, really upper crust, famous, uh, who right. ended up becoming famous, uh, white women. Um, how did this go over, and, and, and what kind of work did you have to do with the alums, the, that base, to kind of get them to come along? Or maybe they didn't right. come along. Most, came, most are with us today, of mm-hmm. course, but at the time, we realized there, there is nothing more divisive in American society, we know this, than race and social class. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about it, but in, in higher education, those are very divisive issues. We still see it today in many schools. For Trinity, when the alums realized that the white majority was disappearing, that became very, very frustrating and a source of anger and conflict. And they didn't really express it that way, you know, they expressed it in ways like, well, we're happy with diversity, but can they do the work here? Are you allowing declining standards? And one of my favorites was, well, we like diversity, but are they Catholic? Religion played through this as well. So there was a great deal of pushback, and there was pushback on the faculty also. The faculty started complaining, they can't do the work here, and that fed into the alumni pushback. Fortunately, my board of trustees was very strong. Mm -hmm. And when we had a few alums, just a very few, did a very public revolt that was in the news and and kind of terrifying for a while, the board gave me the best advice I ever got as a college president, which was to shut up and do my job and (laughs) let them handle the controversy. And boy, was that great advice. I, I would say my board in the 1990s was one of the best boards in America, and we worked through it. And did it also help that eventually you became successful, right? Uh, that, the, that the budgets weren't, uh, were balanced again and, and things like that, right? Nothing succeeds like success. <laughs> and by the time in 1999, 2000, by the time we gathered to break ground on our new sports center, which was the first new building in 40 years, everybody wanted to claim that they were responsible for success. So yes, it worked. It's interesting. How, how did So you could show that financially and in the bottom line and in the growth of the student population and so forth. How did you prove the, uh, the they can't do the work meme uh, wrong? How did you show that to the faculty and alumni? Or, or, or did you not have to? Did it sort of fade away over time? Well, I took a, a very important position that, that I still take and that our faculty have come to understand, which is it's not that the students are underprepared for us. We are underprepared for our students. Mm. And just last week, we hosted a meeting Uh, convened by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, we're one of 24 grantees of major grants to transform science educations. And Howard Hughes takes the position that universities must change their models of pedagogy in order to be welcoming to new populations of students who learn differently, who might be underprepared, but who can thrive with the right pedagogy. My science faculty today is very different from the science faculty we had in 1989. We had a whole generation retire and 
then we hired a new generation of young, very creative faculty who took the position, I have to figure out how to teach these students well. So we have science faculty, I use them as an example, who teach students how to write lab reports by allowing them to write poetry and to do song. Uh, or the anatomy and physiology faculty member uses claymation videos huh. to help her students learn about muscles and so forth. The faculty have learned how to transform pedagogy through engaging students in active learning. It really works. And yes, more than half of our students today are from D.C., most from the D.C. public schools, which unfortunately doesn't prepare them well. But in fact, the students leave as powerful learners able to do all the same things that other college graduates do. That points to another thing, which is that uh, the location has really mattered in the transformation of Trinity. Can you talk about the importance of location and, and the lessons that maybe have for other college leaders around the country? Yes, I get contacted by many college presidents, especially the smaller historic women's colleges, and location is everything. I, my heart reaches out to those in very rural locations who don't have that many options. Being an urban institution meant everything for us. We had the opportunity to see new populations who were local and to welcome them. We also have a great adult education program, and so the moms would come and see that it was great for moms, and then they'd bring their daughters, or vice versa. Our programs are co-ed today in the graduate and professionals, so we get a few dads even coming. Men are about 5% of the population, but still being able to reach out to a local population. I think rural and suburban schools could do that. They'd have to work a little harder at it to identify the population. The one thing that we learned is most small colleges cannot just keep doing what they're doing and hope that things will change. That's a formula for disaster. You have to reinvent your business model. So, Pat, let's talk a little bit about tactics there for other small colleges, because a lot of small colleges, both uh, women's-only colleges but also co-ed colleges, are, are really struggling these days. If, if I were a president of one of these small colleges, say I wasn't in an urban area, and I called you up for advice, what are the couple of things you would, you would, you would tell me to do? Well, the first thing I would say is you have to know your data very well. You have to do a map of your academic programs and your enrollments. You have to be very candid about that data with all of your publics. I took the position early on that there were no secrets, that everybody had to know everything. At one point, I gave my faculty the cost analysis of every single major, and that shocked them. And the, the poor majors really minded that I was doing that, but it helped us to shrink the number of majors. Changing majors, changing academic programs is very, very important. Also, informing the alums about what's going on and asking them to come with us on the change process rather than surprising them with a news story about declining majors or we're about to close. Some of these colleges that are announcing closure that it seems like a surprise, I don't know how that could possibly happen. That's irresponsible. Mm -hmm. You should be educating your community all along. And how about the adult market? Obviously, that's been great for you. Is that, do you feel like that's a, a continuing lever that uh, institutions can, can push? Absolutely. There are about 35 million adults in America who started college and haven't finished it. Every time I hear about all of this declining enrollment, you know, sad sob stories, that's traditional students where the demographics of who's coming out of high school are shrinking. But there are huge numbers of Americans who need to earn college degrees. Now, to reach them, you have to do things differently. You have to do more hybrid and maybe some online. You have to mix your programs. They may not be English majors. They might be occupational therapy majors. 
majors or, or other kinds of applied sciences. But they're out there, and if we're going to meet the goal, you know, Lumina Foundation has said we have to have 60% Americans with college degrees, we need another 20 million seats in order to do that. So all this talk of declining enrollments flies in the face of the fact that there are millions of Americans who need a college education. We're just looking at the wrong slice of the population. So that's a really entrepreneurial stance to take on it. Uh, in, in, the, in the face of shared governance and faculty concerns, you said you've, you've had a strong board that's helped you, but how, and you, you've brought the faculty along, but how do you manage that shared governance uh, 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 opportunity or challenge? You have to know when to push and when to drive the train and when to step back and let them decide whether it's a train or a horse and buggy. Yeah. Uh, there were days when I really had to make decisions and announce them, and that was controversial. And then there were other days when I would say, well, what do you all think. Uh, that's, not, that's not science, it's art. Leadership requires you to know when to push and when to pull back. Uh, but ultimately, the board is saying, we got to keep going here and you've got to make the decision. So that's the way it works. Uh, Pat, there are people uh, in this town and in higher ed who say you are Trinity. Uh, um, so what happens next? Uh, eventually, I guess you will stop doing this job. Maybe you won't. Uh, but but uh, have you been thinking about, uh, because one of the things that I don't think most presidents do very well or higher education in general does very well is succession planning. Have you been thinking about what's next? Oh, yeah. We, we talk succession planning at the board all the time at this point. Um, I keep thinking there's another whole life I might want to have someday that involves being in the woods with my camera and no people around. Um, uh, but it is hard because Trinity is an example of the kind of institution that is slim in its administrative size and in its its pay and perks. So looking at not only, you know, I, I am not Trinity the faculty, the students are Trinity. The faculty do the hard work. I give all the interviews. Um, but but how to find the next leader who is going to be willing to work in an environment that's not as glorious as some other presidencies, but is so richly rewarding. So finding someone with the right values and also with a little bit of that entrepreneurial moxie that I think I've been able to develop. And, and does it matter? Does that person come from outside of Trinity, inside of Trinity? Does it does it matter, do you think? You know, I, I don't think it matters. I think it has to be the right person. Uh, I would be willing to say that that probably it'll be an outsider, but who knows, you know? So one last question, I think, from us, which is that's what's next uh, from a succession planning standpoint. Do you have views on where Trinity goes next uh, and what the next uh, decade might look like for Trinity? Yeah, I think Trinity has to continue to be even more creative than it's been. I think we need to do a lot more with technology and with online learning. We haven't been that much in the space. We have to keep our high touch, high feel. I don't think we'll ever do 100% online for most programs, but we have to become savvier about where the world is on technology and also related professional programs. We still are liberal arts heavy, and that's great. We're moving into healthcare in a big way, and I think the health professions are going to be a big driver of our future curriculum. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, look forward to following uh, both your moves and those of Trinity, and, and the advice more, uh, more, more uh, to the point for all small institutions around the country. Thanks thank so you. much. Great to be with thank you. Thank you. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. 
If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to Future You. Uh, coming off a great conversation with Pat McGuire, the president of Trinity Washington College. And a number of things uh, uh, jumped out at me, Jeff, but uh, her discussion of the role of alumni uh, or, or alumna, I guess, as, as it may be. I, I probably have that pronunciation wrong. But the uh, uh, as a force for maybe blocking change, but then on her board, actually a, a few members helping push change. I'm curious what, what struck you because you've covered so many higher ed, ed institutions. You're on the board yep. of your alma mater as an alum. Uh, how did that resonate with you? I mean, this is something I see all the time, especially talking to presidents when we talk about um, some of the third rails of, of higher education, uh, you know, things like fraternities or, or, or alcohol on campus athletics. Or, or athletics, a big one. Uh, it's that alums, especially powerful ones who have a lot of money or sit on, on the governance of the, of the institution, really see the institution to the prism of when they were there, right? And they want to protect that. And I see this even on the board that I sit on. I, I sit on the board at Ithaca College. You know, most boards, especially private boards, are heavily uh, full of, uh, of, of alums. And so um, they're really kind of protective of, of the status quo. So it's interesting to her, uh, to me that she talked about how her board then became her biggest advocate um, and, and defended her against uh, these, these alums. Uh, so I think that's really um, important. And I also think that success helps, right? So if you're able to then counter that narrative from the alums and show them what they're able to do, uh, I think it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely uh, uh, critical. Yeah, success is the best deodorant, as yeah. they always say. But I, I was struck by her board uh, taking the front uh, uh, line, if you will, on the PR side and allowing her to step back and really do the work, as she said it anyway, and uh, how few boards... Uh, are willing or are able to really uh, do that in higher education? They're often they're often sit back and are more passive than it sounds like uh, the experience that she had. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, most of these boards kind of come in and out. Um, uh, you know, they they may be on campus two or three times a year. Uh, the executive committee may meet more, but you know, the boards in some ways are kind of very disconnected from what's actually happening on on campuses. And we've seen that even in in, in recent weeks. You know, uh, the big scandal out at the University of Southern California, yep. where uh, uh, it, it, you know, this is you know things have been going on there obviously for a couple of years, but the board has been kind of the staunchest defender of, of Max Nicky as the yeah. the president out there, and then finally um, after the latest salvo, especially from these really senior. Um, well-known faculty members, uh, that is really kind of what seemed to crack that, uh, that, that, that defense. But, you know, but these boards, you know, they just don't, I, and many times they're just not part of the culture of, of the institution. So, Michael, what interested me was that I, I think a lot of people look to Trinity as a, for the playbook for how to um, solve the current problems besetting many uh, small, small colleges. Um, and there's some things that Trinity, I think, is unique to Trinity. One is that they're in a, you know, in a very hot city. Um, and, and they started this a long time ago, right? They started this in the, in the early 1990s. But at the same time, there's not uh, things that are unique. You know, uh, uh, Pat on her way out the door was talking about um, health uh, programs and you know and they're fairly new to the health programs area. So as you were listening to Pat, are there are there lessons that other small colleges should or could adopt or are there things that maybe you think 
just don't work for them as you're thinking about the Trinity story. Yeah, I guess I was struck, Jeff, by on this podcast, we've sort of had three transformation stories now that we've told of small colleges. Southern New Hampshire University, which is no longer a small college. They're a mega university, uh, one of the largest uh, in the world. Uh, We have Paul Quinn College, uh, and we had the president, Michael Sorrell, on, of course. Uh, and they uh, pioneered the urban work model uh, and then or urban work college. And then uh, Pat today talking about how they leveraged location uh, to transform their institution and really became a reflection of the community and an outgrowth of the community as opposed to pushing it away and inviting people from around the, the country. And those are three very different stories of transformation uh, in many ways. Two of them uh, leveraged uh, the location significantly, both Paul Quinn and Trinity. Uh, And I was interested in in Pat's comments that, you know, you don't have to do the Southern New Hampshire thing where you become really a global or or a national uh, university, that location probably has opportunities for suburban and rural communities as well. But to tap them, you're going to have to leverage the adult communities. And what is the economic uh, 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 challenges that could help unlock progress in their lives was sort of her perspective. And healthcare, I think, is a really interesting one. If you think across rural communities, there, we know that there's an increasing demand for healthcare services that are out of reach for uh, lots of citizens of, 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 uh, of rural communities. We know that doctors are in short supply, primary care physicians in particular, and yet we also know that there's an outgrowth of a lot of physician assistant roles, pharma, uh, ph- uh, pharmacologist roles, nurse practitioner roles, and the like that can actually take on more and more care that uh, historically has had to be done by specialists. And so maybe there's actually a huge opportunity through telemedicine and, and educating the uh, adult workforce to actually grow the population and not have a decline that that uh, you're seeing. I think regardless, the takeaway that I'm having is something we've always said is your strategy can't be to look like every other institution. You have to figure out what's unique about us. What, what's what's our strategic advantage? And really think about the cluster in which you play and where you can uh, leverage some advantage uh, in a dynamic way to, to uh, increase the presence of your campus and, and uh, stay ahead of the uh, declining uh, traditional, quote-unquote, population that we've explored. There were two things that struck me in, in listening to her. One was uh, the issue of transparency, right? Yeah. That when she came in there, she talked about the budget, and she showed the budget to people, and she said there was something that she said something like, you know, all these school, small schools that have been closing over the last couple of months, and people are surprised by it. You should not be surprised. Well, I'm living in Massachusetts right, right now where shock is on everyone's uh, yeah. uh, minds around Mount, Mount Ida. I mean, there's investigations and everything now. Right. And then the second one was in listening to her was about the, uh, just how she tells her stories. Right. And, and I, you know, even when you're listening to Michael Sorrell and you're listening to Paul LeBlanc and, and, and these others, uh, some of whom we've had on this, uh, on this podcast is that they're just really good storytellers for their institutions and how important that is, uh, not only to gain donors, but to gain support on and off campus with your faculty, with your uh, with your alums, uh, to gain press. Uh, Pat McGuire, for how small that institution is, I would say gets outsized press, right? She's always in the press. Um, she's also willing to say things that are somewhat controversial once in a while. Uh, I think that helps with reporters. But it's incredibly important that, that the institution, especially these small colleges, have a narrative. They have a reason for being. And then they have somebody to tell that story. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the president. Um, I think the president probably is the biggest microphone and, and megaphone. But I think it's incredibly important for them to figure out what their narrative is, to figure out what makes them distinctive. Yeah, I think if Pat had just said, these are the statistics, this is the data about how much these uh, majors cost or whatever it might have been, I think that probably would have fallen flat. I imagine it had to have been woven into that narrative in a story 
you know, facts and data matter, but they only matter if you can resonate with someone at an emotional level and actually see yourself in the story in some way. And so I think you're right. Weaving that story is important. And then you have to have data to back it up, of course, so it's not paper thin. Uh, but, it, but it can't just sort of be, here's the hard data. We've, you know, we've seen that happen where, where presidents come out and say, this is what the cost of this is, and just sort of leave it at that. And vote of no confidence follows because, well, that's your problem, not my problem. Uh, but if you weave it into that narrative, and, and like she said, it's sort of dripping. So you're bringing them along with you as your own, your own uh, search of, uh, or discovery uh, to, to tr- figuring out where is the institution going to land and continue to grow from. So the other thing I was thinking about uh, with her, especially near the end, as we were kind of talking about what happens after um, for Trinity and for, yeah. for Pat McGuire, because, again, she's been there since 1989. She will retire eventually. Uh, is, yeah, is mo- by the way, 30, 30 years yeah. is amazing. It's amazing for, for a president, especially, yeah. is, is the momentum of an institution. So they went through this transformational process in the early 1990s, um, and she's been the driver of that. Um, in your kind of uh, in your study of, of innovation yeah. um, in innovative organizations, two two questions. One is how difficult is it to sustain that initial momentum, right, when things are going very well? And second, what about leadership change when the person who has been really responsible for that transformation leaves the organization? Does it just snap back to where it was? Really hard on the second. So on the first one first, uh, you're absolutely right. That momentum, it's critical to uh, keep up. And it's actually hardest when things are going well because you're, you're like, why do I want to spend scarce resources on that other thing that doesn't pay today, but it's 10 years from now? Uh, but that's when you have to do it because that's when you have the free cash flow. That's when you have the political capital. That's when you have to be investing in the future and taking some bets. And not all the, of them are going to work out, but that's when you have to do it. The example we like to often uh, cite is General Motors. If they had just started investing in the future 15 years before bankruptcy, it would have been a very different future than 2008 uh, when, when, when that hit very hard. Uh, and so when things are best, counterintuitively, that's when you have to be invent, in, in investing in the future most. Last thing on the leadership side, so totally agree with your insight about uh, succession. The thing that we, we think we've seen is it's a lot harder if you're not the founder or the spirit of an organization to make those hard choices for an institution. So, so if Bill Gates came back to Microsoft and he said, tomorrow we're all going to do something totally different from our direction, people probably would trust him because it's Bill Gates and he built the place. Steve Jobs could do this at Apple, right? But if you're someone entrusted with their legacy, there's a lot of probably internal question of, am I following the right path? What if they don't approve sort of thing? And, and I think often, not always, but often you're seen as a caretaker almost as opposed to the person that has the mandate to make the tough choice and maybe split with your uh, historical past. And so it can be hard. And we'll see as, uh, you know, whenever that occurs uh, at a place like Trinity, that, that leadership change, do they really give that mandate that says, hey, if you see something new you got to chase, go do it. Uh, I was struck by one other thing, Jeff, before we, we, before we end this uh, episode, and maybe something to explore, but I was also struck by how much she focused on pedagogy. Uh, and, and she used that word, not, not some of the other words that you use for uh, working with adults, but really active learning, a lot of these techniques, uh, 
that sometimes faculty members don't want to hear about. They say that's academic freedom. And I was curious if that struck you as well, because you don't always hear a president talk about how they actually work with students. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of her uh, 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 evolution as a president, right? So she now has the respect of the faculty. Many of the faculty were, you know, uh, hired after she was was president. And I think, you know, presidents who last as long as she has, and, you know, Jack DeJoy also here in town, the president of Georgetown, has been here almost 20 years, uh, you know, they, they have multiple presidencies in my mind, right? They, they, they come in and her first presidency was kind of uh, uh, making the place work uh, and, then, and then talking about expansion and now talking about evolution, right? So she had the three waves in this case uh, of a presidency. And so I think she can talk about these things now in a way that probably 10, 15 years ago, um, she couldn't talk about. You know, that's uh, probably a perfect segue out, but uh, it also, I think, lends for another topic we'll have to explore multiple presidencies. Maybe we can have Jack on, Rick yep. Levin, and some others that have lasted for, uh, for measured, their, uh, measured their presidency in decades, uh, because I think that's a really important insight you just came up with. So with that, we will leave it and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks for joining us on Future You. Mm-hmm.